This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In order to maintain and promote healthy feet in the best possible way, your Birkenstock sandal has to fit perfectly. It's not often that the words consciously healthy and anatomically fitted are banded around in the world of high fashion, catwalks and couture. The footbed with a perfect fit and the correctly fitted straps. But for the German shoemakers Birkenstock, comfort is bang on trend. And it's proved to be an incredibly lucrative market. So much so that John Lewis has just placed the sandals at the top of their list for Christmas gifts this year. In the last few weeks, Birkenstock started trading on Wall Street for the first time. And it came with a huge price tag. Its shares are priced at $46. That values the company at nearly $9 billion. What were once derided as shoes for hippies, anti-conformists, and who knows, maybe your parents, are now popular with everyone, from your Shoreditch trendsetters to Kendall Jenner. Recently, its iconic sandals were featured in the blockbuster movie Barbie, and it's working together with luxury brands like Dior and Manolo Blahnik. So how did the orthopedic shoe go from hippie to hipster? And what does the company's success say about us? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how ugly Birkenstocks became a multi-billion dollar brand. Would you mind just starting, because we've somehow shockingly not had you on before, would you mind just starting by introducing yourself to our listeners and telling them a bit about what you do? I'm Anna Murphy. I'm fashion director of The Times. And there are two main parts of my job, I suppose. One is reporting on the ultra glamorous, possibly ever so slightly ridiculous side of fashion, which is the catwalks and that luxury world of very expensive, often remarkable, sometimes not so remarkable clothes. And then the other part of my job, which in a way is closer to my heart, is keeping the readers in mind how to make fashion work for you in the real world, how to use what you wear to empower you and make you feel great about yourself. 
I mean, I have to say, the moment you walked in, I was instantly wowed by what you're wearing, which is what you'd expect from you. Yes, I have to say, it does it does slightly amp up the pressure in terms of getting dressed in the morning. Well, no, you've you've definitely definitely passed the the fashion editor test in here. Um, Green jacket, green jumper, very cool. In that bulging wardrobe of yours, though, are there also a pair of Birkenstocks? There are several pairs of Birkenstocks, I must admit, and I am by no means the only person sitting on the front row in Birkenstocks. When the weather's hot, I'm going to say it's pushing maybe 40% of the front row in Birkenstocks, which is a huge shift, even just in terms of the flat aspect of it. You know, when I first started going to the shows decades ago, I remember there was one particular British journalist and she wore incredibly high heels and she used to have... A colleague, we we all thought pretty much his job description was to be support. He basically seemed to be there to kind of <laughs> carry her in and out of of the sh- of the shows. So things have changed a lot in terms of the footwear at the shows. That's amazing. And this summer, the biggest cultural event, Barbenheimer arrived in cinemas, and for fashion aficionados, not least it turns out, forty percent of the front row. There was one key cameo in the big movie of the summer, Barbie. Just describe that moment. Yes. Well, I, I'm i sure, like many listeners, grew up absolutely obsessed with Barbie and at the same time absolutely obsessed with high heels because, of course, Barbie isn't Barbie without a pair of high heels. And indeed, her very feet are moulded to be strictly high heel appropriate only. And there's the moment in the film, a kind of gloriously unexpected moment, where she's offered a very Barbie-ish heel, uh, and she's also offered a Birkenstock, and obviously she's completely ho- horrified by that. What'll it be then? You can go back to your regular life and forget any of this ever happened? Or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. No, we'll do a redo. And then, you know, cut to the end of the film when she's all kind of newly empowered and feminist facing. She steps out of a car in the very final scene. And what is she wearing? Ladies and gentlemen, she's wearing a pair of pale pink, Barbie pink Birkenstocks. So, yes, Birkenstocks is a sort of feminist statement right there. And for this great feminist statement, this one pair of shoes that will now be seen all over front rows on fashion shows, but also in the high street. How did it all begin? Take us back to the origins of this company. Well, we actually have to wind the clock back a very long way. 1774 is where it began. One Johann Adam Birkenstock, who brilliantly uh, registered himself as subject and cobbler um, in Germany. And he's the person who... Subject. Yes, quite. Some translations actually describe him as vassal, uh, (laughs) which is even more fairy tale like but he's the man who begins what really ends up being a kind of shoemaking dynasty but it's in the early years of the last century that we we hear of this first footbed sandal that one of his one of his descendants Carl Birkenstock comes up with and that's Carl with a C there's quite a lot of Carls knocking around so we need to keep on top of the Carls <laughs> Carl with a C comes up with a first footbed sandal in the early years of the last century he also writes a book which I must confess I have not read and will not be reading called, wait for it, Podiatry, the Carl Birkenstock System. And it's his son, Carl with a K, told you, who creates a footbed that's a bit more along the lines of the ones that we see today in 1962. Just explain the footbed. This seems to be key in the Birkenstock empire. 
What is it? Yeah, so a Birkenstock isn't a Birkenstock without a footbed or a fussbet, as it's called in the original. <laughs> Don't you know? Uh, <laughs> and it's basically, for those few people out there who haven't worn one or, or seen one, it's a sort of a sole that is moulded to the base of the foot, basically. It supports all the different bits of the foot rather than just the bits of the foot that would touch a sole if it's entirely flat. So the idea is really comfortable, also lets all your toes sort of spread out and feel very happy. <laughs> and as a wearer, does that happen? Does it work? Yeah, it really does. And I have to say, if you if you do start to go down the Birkenstock Road, beware, because they are so comfortable that it, it can be quite hard actually to revert <laughs> to normal shoes. And in fact, you know, normal shoes are often bear no relation to the actual shape of a foot. So it was interesting, V&A did an exhibition a few years ago about footwear. And they made the point in the exhibition that you look at a foot, it's actually kind of quite squared off. It's quite blunt. Mm. It certainly doesn't look anything like most shoes, with the exception of, of Birkenstock, pretty much. Yeah, that's so true. So 1962, this is Carl with a K. Very um, good. Full marks. I'm following this very carefully. <laughs> uh, he basically invents this footbed in a sandal. In an orthopaedic way, this becomes sort of a real fix for people who have feet problems, I guess. But how does it go from that to being a global hit? Yeah, I mean, as you suggest, it was absolutely not a fashion proposition. It was all about health. It was all very sort of crunchy. It was all quite sort of German and alternative. And indeed, when it first starts to get sold in America, it's sold in health food shops, sort of next to the granola. And, <laughs> health and, food shops? Yes. I mean, that's where I go for my shoes. Well, absolutely, <laughs> yes. But for me, that's a really interesting analogy because actually one of the things that Birkenstock represents is this whole idea of healthiness mm. going entirely mainstream. You know, granola was weird back in the 70s. Birkenstocks were weird back in the 70s. Now we're all eating granola and wearing Birkenstocks. So the rise of the shoe as often with really fundamental aesthetic shifts, is about a much wider shift around how we see ourselves and indeed how we want to be seen by others. Mm. So yeah, it starts to sell in health food shops. Who one, are the people buying it? Well, one uh, early American adopter is Steve Jobs, who was wearing his Birkenstocks in his parents' garage in the 1970s and 80s when he was developing what then seemed to be another kooky idea, the Apple computer. So, you know, on the subject of global domination, that there's another example. I mean, I was born in the 70s and I would say I was not a hippie, but I was edging <laughs> towards that scale. And I wouldn't have gone near Birkenstocks in the 70s and the 80s. They were way too out there for me and way too alternative, really. I think it was kind of the early 90s. That's certainly when I got my first pair. And I think that's when they really started to enter the mainstream in the sort of truest sense. I mean, there was a key moment. That well, partly it's that tipping point, I think, that Malcolm Gladwell writes about brilliantly in his, his bestseller. There are early adopters and then the right people see the early adopters and then they adopt it. And it starts to, to spread like a contagion, which which some Birkenstock naysayers may still consider them to be. But there also obviously tend to be key moments of kind of attention. And one was 16-year-old Kate Moss. But a new look is emerging, and no one better typifies this than model Kate Moss, only five foot seven and much more waifish looking than a Claudia Schiffer or Naomi Campbell. Who was in the Face magazine, like the coolest magazine at the time in 1990, wearing some Birkenstocks. Mark Jacobs put them on the catwalk in 1993. Wow. And so, of course, when fashion figures like that start to take note, then 
so do a lot of other people too. That's when you bought them too. I think at that point you were starting to be able to get them in really cool material. So I had a kind of pony skin pair. It wasn't that they had to be the kind of boring old brown suede version, which of course I now quite like. And then it goes from sort of people are just becoming aware of it. You've got Kate Moss in a magazine that the fashion crowd will have seen. But when does it become properly mainstream? How does it get there? How does it become a global Well, it just really builds from there. So you've got other big figures in this country, Jude Lord, Jay Jagger. Gwyneth Potter actually started wearing them when she was in London in 2002 and actually made headlines for the fact that she was had ditched her heels and was wearing the ultimate flat shoes. And then I suppose their true fashion transformation happened in 2012 mm. when Celine, which at the time was headed up by Phoebe Philo and it was the kind of apex of cool, had these Birkenstock inspired shoes. They weren't actually Birkenstocks that were kind of fur lined, hugely expensive. And suddenly there was this idea that this shoe that had really been also about being an everyman, came from an everyman starting point. Suddenly there was this idea that this shoe could be extraordinary and could be styled, lined with fur as per Celine or, you know, more recent examples, we've seen Manolo Blahnik. Let me introduce myself. I'm Manolo Blahnik. I'm very pleased to introduce Manolo Blahnik for Birkenstock. Who used to go slightly weak at the knees, the idea of women not wearing heels. Uh, now <laughs> it's a man known for heels that are so high they make you dizzy. Exactly. And now he designed some Birkenstocks that sold out almost immediately. They were they were made of, of velvet with Diamante buckles, pink velvet, some of them. <laughs> I just use one of my classical buckles, which is like crystals, and anybody could wear those shoes and it'd be comfortable. Even you could get married on one Birkenstock. So beautiful they are. There have been numerous collaborations with luxury brands. So Valentino, for example, is another brand that Birkenstock has worked with. And again, another thing for me that's quite interesting is it kind of contradicts a lot about the fashion industry. You can have these two price points that coexist. So you can have a pair of Birkenstocks for 75 quid alongside a pair of Birkenstocks that might well be 300 and something from one of these designer collaborations. Mm. Often with luxury, there's this point where if you can get a sort of cheaper version of it or if it becomes too common, too popular, the brand suffers. And that just hasn't happened with Birkenstock. It's managed to kind of keep these two entirely separate kind of revenue streams almost running at once. Coming up, we look at the semiotics of Birkenstocks and Anna answers the most pressing fashion question of our time. Socks or no socks. That's in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. 
and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So Birkenstock grows from a small family brand, which is almost orthopedic in its design, to being a global luxury brand. But behind the scenes, there is trouble brewing. Tell us what's happening to the family, the Carls with all their C's and K's. Yes, well, I think that's a key point, actually, in where we've got to today, in that for many years, those cars with all their C's and K's, the letters were the only points of difference that they had. All the Birkenstocks got on, they owned the company. And then actually, when Carl with a K died in 2002, and he had overseen enormous growth during his tenure, and actually really that true shift into the mainstream that we were talking about, mm. he left control to three sons. And that's when squabbling started to inflict, really, the direction of the company and the brothers all wanted to take it in slightly different ways. Ah, so this is the first time the company isn't just under one person. Exactly, exactly. They appointed a CEO in 2013, Oliver Richardt, the first CEO to come outside the Birkenstock bloodline. And then since then, things have fractured a bit more. The eldest brother sold his shares in that same year. And then the other two brothers sold 70% of their business to a private equity firm in a deal worth about $4 billion. Uh, wow. That was in 2021. I mean, that's a lot of money to suddenly be floating at, at $4 billion. I can't help thinking the, the oldest brother who sold up early probably regretted it at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, and, and that was, you know, two years ago. What we've seen just recently is a flotation that's over $8 billion. Well, Tell us about this. I mean, this is the reason we're talking about Birkenstock today. It has recently floated on the New York Stock Exchange. Why have they chosen to do that now? I think that this is because if you start to have differences within a, a family about how to run a business, then you have to open things up. CEO Oliver Reichert joins us here as we await the first trade. The best thing for this brand would be um, staying family-owned. But within the family, there were so many problems. Um, so we go for the second best option. And the second best option is to be public and give the brand back to the people. To use another example from the fashion sphere, Chanel, which is a family-owned business which hasn't released its figures for years, started to do so recently. There's no reports of discontent within the family, but the current generation are getting older and it may well be that the next generation wants the capacity to sort of leverage, you know, some people sell out, some people not sell out. In order to do that, you, you need evaluation. So, yes, to be privately run, you kind of have to agree. And if you're not, then an IPO is a way to go. Put it to the market. Yeah. And having put it to the market, how is it done? The share price has gone down 11% since trading began. It was a very high valuation in the first place, you know, rightly so, because as discussed, it's this incredible phenomenon of a company. The drop in figures, what does that mean? I think it, it's sort of too early to say yet. What is the secret of its success? 
It's got this magic sauce that I find really fascinating. I mean, to me, Birkenstock is one of the most interesting stories in contemporary fashion. Firstly, because it wasn't supposed to be about fashion. It was supposed to be about function. Mm. And yet it's become incredibly fashionable. But also because it is the exemplification of a much wider shift, this cult, really, of health and sort of function over form, really. Um, And of course, also, they're just comfortable, which is what we demand from contemporary fashion. So much, actually, of the modern fashion uniform comes out of things like workwear. So it's denim that was worn by cowboys and gold miners. It's trench coats and combat jackets that were worn in the army. They're these clothes that are really functional. And that's because however much we love fashion, we need clothes that work for us. You know, mm. we can't do that thing that wealthy women did in 1947 when Dior launched the new look and sit around in a tiny little jacket and an enormous skirt. We need to be able to catch the bus. We need to be able to go to the office, pick up our kids from school and Birkenstock as an example of that. And I think because of this brilliant act that they've managed to do of combining form and function with fashion, combining affordable iterations with incredibly expensive iterations they've got a very good chance. I think it would be quite hard for them to mess it up. So even though there's been this slight wobble on the original price, which you could argue is because it was the price level was set so high in the first place, I think that the wind's set fair. In the past, you have written about the semiotics of the Birkenstock brand. Just explain what you mean. Firstly, just remind us what semiotics are. (laughs) But then also sort of what is it that they represent? Well, semiotics is really what are you signalling by what you're wearing? Uh, Very often, this stuff nestles in our subconscious. We don't know consciously why we're buying something, but there will be something that the item says about us or we want it to say about us, aside from just liking it and just wanting to sort of wear it. And the semiotics of the Birkenstock, it is about being healthy. It's skews quite kind of youthful. It's quite irreverent. And I think another big example of this in contemporary culture is jeans, which were invented for this very precise group of people basically cowboys and gold miners, and now everyone wears them. And there's a big overlap between the semiotics of the two. Mm. It's about being a bit nonconformist. It's about being young. And actually, it's interesting that, you know, even before Birkenstocks became a big thing, that Steve Jobs was wearing them. He was a man who really understood the, again, that word, the semiotics of dress. You know, he for his Apple presentations, he'd always turn up in his black jumper. Yeah, And I think he was someone who signalled, I'm just here to get the job done and my clothes and everything everything else around me are there to just serve my purpose. and Function. And that that's really one of the messages with Birkenstock, I think. And in that Barbie scene way, is there also something about wearing Birkenstocks that symbolises a form of feminism? I mean, I think there's a fascinating interplay, actually, between the history of women's rights and the history of footwear. You know, if you go back to pre-Queen Victoria, actually, if you were a lady of a certain class, you basically didn't really have any shoes you could properly walk in. You wore fabric shoes in your in your sort of house and you didn't really go for long walks out, outside the house because it was not what one did. And it was interesting, it was Queen Victoria who really changed that. She had a pair of boots that she wore 
in the 1840s and they really caught on as you know acceptable for a well-brought-up lady to wear. And poor women and indeed poor men didn't have any sort of shoes at all. Then we cut all the way to the, to the 1960s, you know, this, this moment of feminism. And what have we got? We've got songs like These Boots Are Made For Walking. These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Actually, again, it may sound bogus, but... <laughs> Anyone who's tried to walk in a pair of high heels, you'll know it's not bogus. To be able to set foot, to step out at ease, is a fundamentally empowering act. And that hasn't always been possible for well-bred women. So, yes, I think Birkenstocks are feminist, among many other things. We couldn't let you go without getting a bit of advice for listeners. So quick round of questions about the Birkenstock. Firstly, can you wear them to the office? Is that a no-no? I think it depends on the office. I do. <laughs> but I slightly think as fashion director of the Times, it's my job to wear things that make people in the lift go, really? You're wearing that? <laughs> so yeah, probably not for every office. I think m my advice on dressing for the office is to kind of make like an anthropologist really, go the full sort of David Attenborough and look around you at your tribe because it is a tribe and look at how they dress and how they present themselves and then dress to fit in just enough and to stand out just enough. I would argue that you don't want to look the same as everyone else. Mm. Find a sort of happy compromise between those two points. Which might mean Birkenstocks if you work at the Times. <laughs> yes. um, what sort of socks allow you to get away with socks? Well, I mean, sandals? socks are so okay that there's a new Gucci ad out and it's got Paul Mescal in it wearing the, those signature Gucci loafers that date back to the 1960s. He's wearing black loafers with, wait for it, white toweling socks. Oh, my God. So, yeah, again, de <laughs> depending on your, you know, how much you want to push the envelope, anything goes these days. You know, that that is what I love about fashion. If you're up for it and you can own it, you can wear whatever you jolly well like. But yes, I personally, I think white turling socks with Birkenstocks is a bit de trop, as they might say in Paris. <laughs> but I do, yes, I, I mean, you're just going to faint in horror now, but I do have a yellow woolly pair of socks, sort of fluffy socks. Think Big Bird, but in sock form. <laughs> <laughs> I have been known to wear with my Birkenstocks, but obviously you're now, you know, you'll never invite me back now because you just think I'm mad. No, I'm waiting for the day I see that combination in the lift. <laughs> okay. Please make that There's happen. There's a challenge. Very good. <laughs> Final bit of advice to listeners. If they don't have a pair of Birkenstocks, should they invest in them? Only if they make your heart sing. If they don't, there are lots of other great shoes out there. And what's fantastic is the rise, no pun intended, of the flat shoe. There are so many lovely embellished flats out there, shoes that are sort of Barbie levels of specialness, the kind of shoes I dreamed of as a little girl with my Barbie and thought could only come in heel form. Bowden's got some great ones. There's lots of good ones on the high street. So I will forgive you if you don't feel moved to embrace the Birkenstock religion. <laughs> Whether the Carls, C and K, will forgive you is another matter. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, fashion director at The Times, Anna Murphy. You can find all of Anna's work every Wednesday in T2 or at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to listen back to some of our other recent podcasts, including last Friday's on sex tapes, gossip blogs and Paris Hilton, how the noughties went toxic. And if you're a Time subscriber, do have a listen to some of our exclusive bonus episodes with Apple Podcasts. And in the last episode, we went behind the scenes at the Times Arts Desk and looked at how they were reporting on Britney Spears' new memoir. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer was Fiona Leach. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to get in touch with us about anything you heard in this episode or any other episode, or any stories that you'd like us to look at in the near future, then do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.